Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experienced life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of artists and songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through the 1980s. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on songs from artists who had only one song peak within the mainstream Top 40 chart during 1982 and 1983 in my 11th episode titled One Hit Wonders 82-83. to That episode, along with many others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at jeepmusicpodcast at gmail.com. My father used to say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd like to give a humble and heartfelt thank you for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I make mixtapes, talk about 80s music, and the memories associated with them for everyone to enjoy. On August 4th, 1958, Billboard magazine premiered one main all-genre singles chart that ranked the most popular songs in the United States based on radio airplay and retail sales, and they called it the Hot 100 Singles Chart. Prior to this, there were three separate charts that calculated a song's popularity and ranking by measuring its performance from sales, radio airplay, and jukebox activity in order to rank it. The first of these three separate charts was known as Best Sellers in Stores, which ranked the biggest-selling singles in retail stores, like record shops, and drug stores, like Woolworths, that, in addition to the regular items, also sold records. Depending on how much the public was buying a specific song could determine if it ranked at or near the top of the chart, or if it stalled somewhere in the middle or near the bottom. The second of these individual charts was called Most Played by Jockeys, which ranked the most requested and played songs on United States radio by stations and their on-air DJs. This particular chart was crucial for so many established acts that sought to continue making record sales with each new album and singles in order to avoid fading from the public's eye and ear. This chart could also contribute to breakthroughs for new artists that were seeking to broaden their regional or limited appeal by garnering national airplay and also gaining new audiences. 
The last of these three charts used to measure a song's popularity and ranking prior to 1958 was known as Most Played in Jukeboxes, which ranked the most played songs in jukeboxes across the United States. For those who are unfamiliar with or don't recall, a jukebox was a partially automated, coin-operated, music-playing machine. It featured buttons, some of them with letters, uh, some of them with numbers on them that were then used to select a specific record from a self-contained collection within the jukebox. Uh, for example, if you wanted to hear the song The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry, you would simultaneously push down the letter C and the number three, and then the record would begin playing. I can remember many times putting a quarter into the jukebox at Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor and choosing the songs that I wanted to hear, then watching as the mechanical arm inside sorted through the numerous 45-inch vinyl records before finding and playing my selections. As the popularity of jukeboxes waned and radio stations began to incorporate more rock-oriented music into their playlists, the three charts were then condensed into what would become the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. This chart would specifically use the data from re retail sales and radio airplay in order to rank the 100 most popular songs in the country, regardless of musical genre. In addition, Billboard also had specific charts for various musical genres, such as country and Western, folk, and R&B songs. Between the years 1980 and 1989, the decade had more than 200 musical acts considered one-hit wonders. This meant that the artist, the band, or musical group saw only one of their release songs peak within the U.S. mainstream Top 40 chart. At the time, being associated with just one song and earning the label of one-hit wonder could be incredibly frustrating and stifling to many acts, as it suggested the band or the artist didn't have the talent, backing, or resources necessary to generate more than one memorable record. It's interesting how one single song can catapult an unknown artist into almost overnight success, and at the same time, that same single song can also become associated with stymieing their further musical growth. I remember once having a conversation with my father in the shop and asking him why some singers and bands that I thought had talent and great records couldn't seem to sustain their fame, while at the same time, it seemed like the same artists seemed to be everywhere on MTV, all over the radio, and on the Billboard charts. I wondered why one act had difficulty staying relevant and getting airplay, while another seemed to have absolutely no problem with finding and maintaining their success. What was it about an artist that was considered a one-hit wonder that resonated so well with audiences on one song, but that it didn't transfer to their follow-up or future singles? Why were people just abandoning artists all of a sudden? In true My Father fashion, he went over to the magazine rack and grabbed the current issue of Billboard magazine, and he flipped through the pages until he found the U.S. Hot 100 singles chart page for the ranking of songs as of that week. I remember standing there with my young eyes darting up and down and from the top and to the bottom of the page as I saw the names of so many familiar songs from singers, bands, and musical groups that I recognized and enjoyed. The top five alone were just an incredible domination of what the 1980s saw. Number one was Prince. Number two, Bruce Springsteen. Number three, The Pointer Sisters. Number four, Billy Idol. And number five was Duran Duran. And not far behind was Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Van Halen. 
My father pointed at the songs in the bottom half of the countdown that were either debuting, stalled, or just on their way down, and said, even though the charts are ranking what songs they think are popular, it doesn't really matter because if a person loves a song, no chart can ever measure the impact and the meaning that it gives them. There may be times when you wonder why the song you like doesn't climb higher on the chart or get played more often on the radio, but ultimately it isn't something that you can control. He then went on to talk about how record companies want to make money and are fickle about supporting an artist's musical development toward moving in different directions because that may not result in huge profits and the record companies are in business to make money. The record labels often want the artist to write and recreate the same type of or a similar sounding song so that it can be a hit just like their previous one was. They don't want to alienate any of the listeners. As musical tastes and genres change, they do tend to bring along and popularize a variety of artists that score hit songs, but who are rarely heard from again. Throughout the 1980s, artists whose one hit song was rooted in rock or dance pop, new wave, rap, adult contemporary, or electronica, or any other musical genre, still became categorized as one hit wonders. One of the most significant contributors to artists becoming known as one-hit wonders were novelty acts or songs. Novelty songs will always be popular because they provide commentary on something in pop culture that is relatable and open for ridicule at the same time. The 1980s saw more than its fair share of novelty acts, ranging from a catchy ode to the silliest member of the Three Stooges called The Curly Shuffle by the band Jump in the Shadow, which peaked at number 15 in 1984, or the song General Hospital by the group The Afternoon Delights, which was an early 80s rap song that peaked at number 33 in 1981 and chronicled the various plot lines and characters of the popular soap opera General Hospital. Do you remember the song Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia, complete with storyline and sounds from the incredibly popular video game Pac-Man? That song peaked at number nine on the chart in March of 1982 but they failed to find a successful follow-up despite having an album full of songs that were dedicated to video games, ranging from Frogger to Centipede. There were also other novelty acts ranging from comedy groups like Lotto with their non-charting single, I Want to Be a Lifeguard, to well-known actors like Don Johnson and Bruce Willis, who scored their one and only hits on the chart with Heartbeat and Respect Yourself, both peaking at number five during their chart runs. Ultimately, during the 1980s, the Billboard chart did what it originally intended to do, which was measure the popularity and play of songs within the United States based on sales and airplay. It's just too bad that they didn't also take into account how meaningful and memorable many of the songs that didn't find fame or longevity for their artists were to listeners like myself. Who knows, it may have led to less one-hit wonders appearing and disappearing before we really got to know them. Our theme for the month of August is still one-hit wonders of the 1980s, with each week including song selections in sequential order from the decade. This week, we'll cover one-hit wonders of 1984 to 1985. Throughout the decades, numerous artists and musical acts have acquired airplay on the radio, placed on the music charts, and received exposure in music videos, only to then seemingly disappear shortly after gaining popularity with one song. 
Of all the decades, the 1980s is unquestionably at the forefront of producing a majority of one-hit wonders whose singular songs still echo their artists' original appeal to audiences. This includes songs like Let the Music Play by Shannon or Right on Track by Breakfast Club. The years between 1984 and 1985 continue to see many artists and bands benefit from the recent explosion of new wave and dance music that had begun to dominate the airwaves and music video channels within the previous year. This shift in the ever-changing music scene of styles and sounds had the distinction of seeing a significant switch in trends and tastes as music subgenres like new romantics and high-energy dance began to surface from mainstream rock and pop sounds. Suddenly, artists considered more experimental and eccentric had their songs being played in clubs and by radio DJs, which introduced them to wider audiences. This momentum led many artists to capitalize on the still relatively new music video format by creating visual images that viewers could associate with them and their songs. With so many genres and artists competing at the same time for the eyes and ears of audiences, there was an abundance of musical acts that saw their exposure become limited or less impactful than they or their record labels had hoped for. As a result, several bands, singers, and musical groups that saw success with catchy and appealing songs were also the same acts that found themselves released from their record contracts when they were unable to produce follow-up hit singles to match or exceed their previous song. Our playlist recognizes a one-hit wonder as an artist that has achieved mainstream musical success by charting only one song that peaked specifically within the top 40 of the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. This chart was used and recognized beginning in 1958 to measure the progression and popularity of songs, regardless of genre. Artists often thought of as one-hit wonders, such as Falco, are in fact two-hit wonders, and while most audiences are aware of his incredible breakout song, Rock Me Amadeus, which peaked at number one for three weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart in March of 1986, his follow-up song, Vienna Calling, also made it into the mainstream top 40, peaking at number 18 three months later. Those songs like Feels Like Heaven by Fiction Factory and Last Night a DJ Saved My Life by In Deep may also be seen as one-hit wonders, both acts failed to chart within the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. Our playlist includes artists from 1984 to 1985 who hit it big with a track that peaked within the mainstream top 40, but saw further releases peak between positions 41 and 100, and in some instances failed to even reach the top 100 of the chart. So let's continue to turn back the clock and prepare to reacquaint ourselves one more time with these one-hit wonders from the years 1984 and 1985 as we make a mixtape. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I've pressed down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I'll use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. 
I'm ready to start side A of the mixtape, which includes selections released during the year 1984, and I have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette player and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in January of 1984 and peaked at number 31 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Talk Talk, and the song is It's My Life. I recognized music from an early age and enjoyed dancing around to it as a little kid, but most of my enthusiasm came from the music production of the song rather than what the actual singer was singing. When I first started to really listen to singers' voices as they sang songs about finding, falling, and failing at the subject of love, I mostly listened to artists that my parents enjoyed. I remember receiving an early tutorial from my father on rock music and its many subgenres, such as progressive rock with groups like Yes and Pink Floyd, to soft rock artists like The Carpenters and James Taylor, as well as a variety of other forms of rock music from artists like The Grateful Dead, Jim Croce, The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, and Led Zeppelin. To balance this, from my mother I received a steady stream of soul music in all its forms, including the soulful crooning of Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, the otherworldliness of Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight, the fusion of soul, R&B, funk, and dance from artists like Sly and the Family Stone, Donna Summer, and the Jackson Five, as well as the incredible artists, the sounds, and the songs created by the legendary Motown Records with Diana Ross and the Supremes, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, and so many others. Around the beginning of the 1980s, I started to really listen to the lyrics of the songs I was hearing and found I could interpret them when I just sat still and listened. This was also helped by many of the albums that I enjoyed having the liner notes of each song printed within the album sleeve that held the record. I used to sit cross-legged or lying on my stomach on my bed just listening to music on my first record player, which was just that, a record player and small speakers that sat on the top of my dresser. There was no dual cassette player, no radio, or fancy stereo system. I'd sit holding the album sleeve, looking at pictures of the singer or the band, and memorize the lyrics to the songs on their albums. Every once in a while, though, I'd feel ripped off or slighted in some way when I excitedly opened an album and there was nothing but a blank white sleeve holding the record album inside of the jacket. No liner notes, no band thank yous, no nothing. When I started to develop musical tastes outside of what my parents had in their record collection, I began to find myself drawn to a lot of the sounds that became popular with the second British invasion of the early 1980s. This included being rendered speechless upon first discovering the bands Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, and the Eurythmics. I remember it feeling like this was truly music for me because the artists looked nothing like what my parents were listening to, and they sounded certainly like nothing that my parents were listening to either. The group Talk Talk is another one of the first bands I discovered on my own during this time. I'd heard their songs Talk Talk and Mirror Man from their debut album called The Party's Over, and was impressed with the larger-than-life sound of the synthesizers and drums that were used in those songs, as well as many others on the record. What really captured my attention, though, was lead singer Mark Hollis's vocal style, which would go from a soft whisper into ecstatic, almost shouting, as he belted out high notes with ease. The album track, Today, really sets the tone for what to expect, or 
rather to expect the unexpected from his voice as he starts the song in a lower register. And just as the background singers call out today, he belts out the lyric. It's a dream away during the chorus. And there's just no denying the passion and the presence that he possessed when singing. I remember years later, I was pushing a broom through rows of vinyl records within the shop and lamenting about having to help my parents clean and stock and take inventory early on a Saturday morning when I heard my father playing a familiar voice on the speakers. It was Mark Hollis's signature low register whisper into full belting vocals as he moved in and out of a heartfelt and haunting lyric. I didn't recognize the song, but knew it wasn't from their first album because I'd played that repeatedly and I knew those tracks quite well. Is this talk talk? I asked my dad, already knowing the answer. He nodded and handed me the jacket of their second album titled It's My Life. I don't know how long I stood there holding the album jacket and eyeballing it from front to back, but it must have been more than a moment because I heard the full belting of my mother's voice telling me to put it down and get back to sweeping. I remember leaving the shop later exhausted after helping clean up, but I was also enthusiastic because I was leaving with a copy of the new Talk Talk album as well. The second record was way different than their first, and though they retained some of the sounds that they used previously, like the synths and the elaborate drums, they had also now incorporated unique guitar riffs and keyboards and engaging melodies and rhythms from a variety of instruments they sounded less like the bands that they were being compared to, like Duran Duran and Spando Ballet, and more like the sound of A Flock of Seagulls or Oingo Boingo. Talk Talk were a band that were way ahead of its time, with their insightful song lyrics, their experimentation with orchestration and music production, and just their general crafting and developing moods within their songs. The title song, It's My Life, includes many of these elements and is a declaration of personal insight set against an arrangement of sweeping waves of synths balanced with a stunning bass line and a jazz-tinged rhythm section that replicates various bird and wildlife noises. Not to mention the fantastic anticipatory buildup in the pre-chorus of the song where Mark Hollis sings, I've asked myself, how much do you commit yourself? before his vocals explode into the chorus of it's my life don't you forget it's my life it never ends now the pre-chorus into the chorus has an appealing chord progression set against a thrilling bass line which it builds just as he exclaims that chorus of it's my life it just it catapults and just skyrockets it just out into the stratosphere I just, I remember feeling then as I do now that it was such a standout track and it was interesting how just the music and the production pounds along and how heartfelt and haunted he sounded. And I remember thinking how incredibly emotionally hurt he was uh, to sound as he did in the song. But the music is such a juxtaposition to this where you're dancing and bobbing your head and snapping your fingers and moving along and he's not of the same enthusiasm. It's My Life is a song about a person's self-confrontation and actualization. It's about really taking a look at yourself and recognizing the whole person you are despite being half in a relationship. It's just well-crafted songwriting and it's told from the perspective of a man taking a look at his value in his relationship and validating whether to stay or leave. 
the lyrics, funny how I find myself in love with you. If I could buy my reasoning, I'd pay to lose. One half won't do. Demonstrate that he's aware to an extent that he's giving more than he's getting out of the relationship. However, that lyric, one half won't do, is revealing because he'd rather convince himself he feels whole with less rather than realize less is more and reclaim his own independence. It's this foolish thinking behind the idea that you have forever to change someone when in actuality you have for now to change yourself. It's My Life is such a melancholy song because it isn't about the singer making such a grand declaration like the chorus does by saying, it's my life, and then moving away and on into the night away from it. It's more like saying, it's my life, defiantly or in a way that people say when they're confronted on behavior choices, you know, they just throw up their hands and it just looks and sounds juvenile and empty and it doesn't really resolve anything. The singer really needs to not only listen to this lyric, but to hear it and act upon it. It's as though he's challenging himself with one side providing and outlining reasons why the relationship isn't working and the other side making the excuse or the statement of refusal on why he shouldn't end the relationship. In the end, things just remain stuck. The singer seems to want it both ways. He wants to be able to live his life the way he chooses, but at the same time, lament the problems that are evident within it. As It's My Life by Talk Talk fades out, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 2 was released in March of 1984 and peaked at number 37 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Icicle Works, and the song is Whisper to a Scream, Birds Fly. There are many songs from the 1980s that, in my opinion, capture the fast and frenetic energy associated with being young during the decade. Songs like Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship, Summer of 69 by Brian Adams, or The Promise by When in Rome, amongst many others. Right alongside those, I always think of Whisper to a Scream by Icicle Works, which instantly transports me back to my youth and time spent trying to experience and explore everything possible while being both engaged and disengaged at the same time. It's that feeling that time was running out while simultaneously standing still, the magic of adolescence, the confusion of first feelings, that youth equated to invincibility, and that being young would last forever. It was literally raising my hands up and fist punching into the air while rocking along with the radio after my song finally came on. It was countless hours spent dancing around in the living room in front of the TV while watching music videos on MTV and trying to mimic the dance moves and choreography from Janet Jackson, Madonna, and Michael Jackson. It was all the time spent walking through the front door of the record shop and discovering and discussing music with my dad. It was hanging out at Le Mans Speedway Arcade with all my friends and trying to earn the high score on Ms. Pac-Man, Pole Position, or Donkey Kong Jr. It was many times spent in a darkened theater, just laughing, being scared, and enjoying watching movies like Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, Police Academy, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Back to the Future, and so many others at the Festival Theater, the Southland Theater, or even that lackluster Cinema 5. 
There are so many fond memories that I have from my youth and the many people from my family to friends to schoolmates, teachers, and so many others that were involved in it. And I can always see these moments and the faces of all of these people fleet by whenever I hear the song whisper to a scream. I suppose my thoughts on my youth upon hearing this song stem largely from its incredible music production. The song is a brilliant pop song complete with shimmering guitars, thumping percussion that nearly stills the show, and a hook-laden chorus designed to belt out while running, dancing, jumping, or moving around in some way that isn't just standing still. The bassline and quick-paced tribal drum beats together succeed at creating an unbridled sound that hurries the song along while also allowing its softer moments to breathe. The music production and the song in general capture all of the post-punk, new wave sound that I miss hearing from this time in the 80s. The song's verses allude to the meaning of life, spirituality, faith, and finding and achieving a sense of nirvana. Lyrics like, Some things take forever, but with building blocks of trust and love, mountains can be moved. Love come down upon us till you flow like water, burning with a hope of insight, feathered look, they're covered with a bright elation, stolen in the sight of love. The lyrics lead to a rousing sing-along chorus that's both anthemic and artistic as the lyrics cry out, We are, we are, we are mature children finding our way around indecision. We are, we are, we are rather helpless Take us forever, a whisper to a scream. For myself, and for so many others who grew up during the 1980s, this song is a reminder that the 80s were more than just a decade. They were a time, a place, an attitude, a state of mind, and a memory that we're all ready to revisit the moment the opening guitar chords begin on this song. As Whisper to a Scream, Birds Fly by Icicle Works fades out, I'll pause the cassette player and grab the 45-inch single of the next song. Track 3 was released in June of 1984 and peaked at number 38 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are face-to-face, and the song is 1098. The early 1980s had some of my favorite female-fronted bands whose music and songs were topical, engaging, and all-around entertaining. There was something about hard-edged songs like Bad Reputation by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, or kiss-off songs to lovers and Love Gone Wrong like Goodbye to You by Scandal or Shame by the Motels that had an appealing energy about them that I just couldn't get enough of. In its early years, MTV was still a phenomenon that not all Americans could actually access in their homes due to many rural and inner-city areas that weren't yet serviced by cable television. In addition, not all cable television providers offered MTV as a channel option at first. Our household had MTV, and despite my mother's regular objections to turn it down or turn it off, the channel played regularly in our home, at least until I left for college in 1991. In its first few years, the channel didn't have a huge selection of music videos and often ran and rotated the same artists repeatedly throughout the day. Despite emerging and becoming the main source to watch music videos, there were some artists that were played on the radio and that were popular, but that you didn't always see their videos on MTV. 
Friday Night Videos was a weekly 90-minute music video program that was similar to MTV in that it played popular music videos and had segments featuring current bands or musicians talking about things. But it took a page from my favorite music video show called Night Tracks that aired on channel TBS and showed music videos by lesser-known artists or bands from the genres of pop, rap, rock, and R&B that received limited or no play on MTV at the time. Friday Night Videos was also able to capitalize on and within the areas where MTV was not yet accessible because it aired only on the local NBC affiliate station that many Americans already had access to. Plus, the show was broadcast in stereo, which meant it was also available to listen to the audio portions on stereo simulcast over FM radio on radio stations that were owned and operated by the channel or its affiliates. The in-stereo feature would also later become available on several NBC programs like Miami Vice and The A-Team. Imagine how clear and intimidating Mr. T's voice sounded when synced up and playing through the stereo console while his mohawk, muscled, and gold jewelry-clad body menacingly stared you down from the television set. I remember I first saw the video for the song 1098 by the new wave band Face to Face, led by singer Lori Sargent on Friday Night Videos, and instantly became a fan of the song. The visuals of the video were impressive for their time and featured certain objects like a glass of juice or a mouthwash bottle highlighted in the colors red or green to indicate the stop and go aspects of the broken relationship sung about in the opening verses. Lead singer Lori Sargent's vocals have almost a breathy but determined voice as she sings, I'll be your loaded dice. You're holding all the cards. You set the tone whenever I'm with you. You make up all the rules in this game of fools. I see your signals change. They go from green to red. It's always stop and go when the colors are changing. Never let on, never let on. Look to the left, look to the right. Why can't you look me straight in the eye? Her delivery is sensual and emotive, with the percussion and the guitars echoing along before the verses and her vocals soar into the catchy chorus of 1098. I'm always counting down. You feel the pressure when you're under the gun. 654. I'm always counting down. Isn't it funny? I never get to one. I remember after I heard the song and saw the video on Friday Night Videos, I had the 45-inch single of it before the weekend was even through. Sadly, the song barely made an impact on the radio, and it remains the band's only song to chart, making them one-hit wonders. Which is really too bad, because it's such a well-crafted song that should have been the band's uh, just door-opener to achieve more success than they actually did. As 1098 by Face to Face ends, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 4 was released in September of 1984 and peaked at number 24 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Reby Jackson, and the song is Centipede. Is it strange that when it comes to music, there's a member of the incredibly talented and famous Jackson family that's considered a one-hit wonder? It seems unusual that Reby Jackson, the eldest child of the Jackson children, is labeled this when she came from the same stock that produced the Jackson 5, 
and saw successful solo careers launched by her siblings, Michael, Janet, and Jermaine. I must admit that I didn't know there was another Jackson child who could sing and dance when Reby Jackson, the oldest child of the Jackson children, decided to join the family business at age 34, nearly twice the age of her youngest sister and youngest Jackson sibling, Janet. While her siblings were starting careers in the music and entertainment industries during the 1970s and early 80s, Reby was busy starting a family after marrying her high school sweetheart and raising children before she decided she was ready to visit the idea of cultivating a music career. In 1984, the world was certainly familiar with the Jackson 5 and their catalog of hit songs, including I'll Be There, ABC, and Dancing Machine, and the members that launched solo careers from the group, like Jermaine Jackson with his songs Let's Get Serious and Dynamite. And of course, the man who changed the landscape of music videos, choreography, and music production, Michael Jackson, who by 1984 had escalated to the highest echelon of entertainer after the incredibly groundbreaking album Thriller. While breaking into the music business can be challenging for some, it paid for Reby Jackson to receive some brotherly love in the form of her brother Michael Jackson writing and producing her soul hit song, Centipede. This was at a time when nearly everything Michael Jackson was involved with or touched became a hit, like Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell, We Are the World by USA for Africa, duetting with Mick Jagger on the song State of Shock, or reuniting with his brothers on the Jackson's Victory album and tour. What exactly was going on in Michael's mind when creating the song Centipede is anyone's guess, though, as the lyrics include the verses, You came to strike him with your touch, like you crawled into the bathroom window to bite him with your love. Like a centipede that's hot, the fire is in your touch. Like a centipede, you've got a lot of loving to touch. I've always assumed it's a subtle song about the dangers of sexual intimacy because centipedes are venomous creatures and can inflict painful bites while injecting their venom through pincher-like appendages. At least, this is what I learned from the video game Centipede at Le Mans Speedway Arcade. I could be wrong, though, and maybe there's no subtlety or subtext to the song, and it's just an 80s song being an 80s song because it was the 80s. In any event, the song is extremely catchy with its stuttered synth-pop arrangement, the riff on the guitars, and the drum beats creating a funk-filled dance jam centered around one of the most disgusting creatures that no one wants crawling into their bathroom window. My favorite part of the song is the infectious chorus that sees Reby Jackson singing the lyrics. Don't you know in the quiet of the night when the snake is in the crawling and the moon starts to glow then disappear? When the time is really right is when the centipede is crawling. You'll be crying in the night so many tears. And it's crawling like a centipede. And then it takes a few beats with the drums and the guitars. And then just in full voice, it goes, centipede. (laughs) To further ensure, though, that the song would be a hit or at least garner some radio airplay and attention for his sister, Michael Jackson also sings background vocals on the song's chorus, along with Martha Wash from the Weather Girls. You can hear her unmistakable vocals providing the ad-libs and the high notes after the bridge into the final chorus and fade out of the song. This is the same woman that didn't receive credit here 
and didn't also receive credit for providing the extremely catchy and infectious Everybody Dance Now on CNC Music Factory's hit song, Gonna Make You Sweat. Though Reby Jackson would go on to release a couple more albums before the end of the decade, Centipede remains her one and only hit, making her the member of the Jackson family who's a one-hit wonder. Although now that I think about it, LaToya Jackson never had a top 40 hit during her career, so perhaps being a one-hit wonder ranks higher than being a no-hit wonder? Hmm. As Centipede by Reby Jackson fades out, with the background chanting the refrain of Centipede, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 5 was released in December of 1984 and peaked at number 29 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Autograph, and the song is Turn Up the Radio. It's hard to say, but perhaps the Los Angeles-based glam rock metal band Autograph could have found and sustained success and longevity longer than they did if they'd hit the music scene a few years later. The years from 1987 to 1989 saw a large influx of rock metal artists and bands whose songs received constant airplay on radio and whose music videos were in constant rotation on MTV. This was at the peak of the hair metal movement, which was a subgenre of rock similar to glam metal of the 1970s, and it featured pop-influenced hooks, guitar riffs, upbeat rock anthems, and slow power ballads. The music of hair metal was heavy enough for headbangers, it was also catchy enough for radio to play the songs, and a number of bands associated with it had exceptional members that could create incredible sounds from their guitars, drums, and keyboards, which gave the subgenre some credibility to anyone that was ready to write it off. It saw its artists regarded as much for their stylishly long and hairsprayed high to the heavens hairstyles, makeup, and outrageous clothing as they were for their musical anthems like Nothing But A Good Time by Poison or Seventeen from Winger. Who knows, if the timing had been different with Autograph, perhaps they would have been performing on Headbangers Ball and chatting afterward with host Ricky Rackman, instead of being known as one-hit wonders. One of the things that I enjoy about the song Turn Up the Radio by the band Autograph is that it allows the listener nearly a minute from the start of the song to its opening verses to simply sit back and appreciate the beauty of its music production. Lead guitarist Steve Lynch's guitar work on the song features a distinctive two-handed fretboard tapping technique, which won him the Guitar Solo of the Year Award from Guitar Player Magazine in 1985. This was at a time when a lot of guitar players were mimicking the unprecedented skills of Eddie Van Halen or Prince. This extended intro gives the listener a chance to really get into the vibe of the tune as the percussion and guitars build and become heavier and more piercing just before the opening lyrics of I'm working hard, you're working too, we do it every day. For every minute I have to work, I need a minute of play. Day in, day out, all week long. Things go better with rock. The only time I turn it down is when I'm sleeping it off. The song Turn Up the Radio is a fun ode to rocking out on the radio and cranking the volume up as high as possible without splitting the speakers or creating any static feedback as the chorus cries out, Turn up, 
the radio i need the music give me some more turn up the radio i want to feel it got to give me some more the infectious anthem of its guitar work pulsating drums keyboards and commanding chorus demonstrated the power and the potential that autograph had but sadly, after releasing several follow-up singles and two more albums with no success, the band decided to call it quits and call it a day on their recording career. As Turn Up the Radio by Autograph fades out, I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape to Inside A. To recap, we open Side A with It's My Life by Talk Talk, followed by Whisper to a Scream, Birds Fly by Icicle Works. Next was 1098 by Face to Face, then Centipede by Reby Jackson, and we ended Side A with Turn Up the Radio by Autograph. We're halfway there. Now I'll flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons and prepare to start Side B of the mixtape, which includes selections released during 1985, and I have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette player and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in April of 1985 and peaked at number 13 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Baltimore, and the song is Tarzan Boy. One of the most memorable scandals in the history of popular music came about during the year 1989, when it was discovered that the 80s dance-pop duo Milli Vanilli had been miming and lip-syncing the vocals to their hit songs. It was eventually revealed that Rob and Fab, the faces of Milli Vanilli, were used and marketed as the act, while studio session singers performed and recorded all of the vocals for their songs. This was uncovered when the duo performed at a concert in the summer of 1989 and were discovered to be lip-syncing during their performance of Girl You Know It's True when the record began skipping and the duo panicked and ran off stage. This led to speculation that perhaps they had been lip-syncing their supposed live performances the whole time and a deeper speculation suspected that they hadn't even sung a note on their album. Their album released in 1988 had been a huge success and saw a massive return on profits for the record company and the producers as five singles were released and all of them landed in the top five of the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart, with three of them reaching the number one spot. At their peak, Milli Vanilli were everywhere, with their blazers and bike shorts, jump-and-bump dance-together moves, and beautiful faces and braided hair. They dominated radio airplay and music video channels, and even won the Best New Artist Grammy Award, which they'd later return. After the reveal and subsequent backlash against them, the duo were dropped from the record label, left damaged financially, emotionally, and otherwise, and left to move forward and away from the scandal on their own. Here, over 30 years later, it may not seem like such a big deal that a celebrated pop star isn't exactly what he, she, or they seem, and that he, she, or they are just actually a puppet used as the product to make profits. But at the time, it was incredibly surprising to witness it all unfold in the media, especially how Rob and Fab were held solely accountable for the facade behind Millie Vanilli and left to figure it and out in themselves in the aftermath. Obviously, this type of scandal wasn't new to the music business. It's just more readily acknowledged and accepted within the last few days. 
It's interesting, though, how you hear very little about how the act known as Baltimora had more in common with Millie Vanilli than with the Edgar Rice Burroughs literary character that's name-checked in their novelty song Tarzan Boy. Baltimora was manufactured as a project by Italian pop music producer Maurizio Bassi, who, in addition to writing the lyrics and composing the music for Tarzan Boy, also sang the song. That's his voice we hear throughout the song, including on the infectiously catchy riff on the Tarzan yell. Oh, 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 When the song began to pick up popularity in the Italian clubs and on Italian radio, it eventually caught the ear of American radio station DJs who began playing it, and it began to gain momentum in the United States. Maurizio Bazzi had no interest in appearing in a music video or doing the rounds in the United States performing on TV shows like American Bandstand or Solid Gold, and instead hired a young dancer from North Ireland named Jimmy McShane to pose as the face of the group. To the record-buying teens and young adults of the time, the handsome, talented dancer was Baltimora, and he achieved success from the song even if he wasn't the person responsible for it. Tarzan Boy is undeniably pleasing to the ear and includes an instantly recognizable electro-pop sound from its opening guitars and drum beats. The song is an ode to removing the restraints of responsibility and living freely, similar to how the character of Tarzan did. The song opens with the lyrics, Jungle Life, I'm far away from nowhere, on my own, like Tarzan Boy indicating that the singer is removed from human civilization and breaking away from the routine and regularity of life and addressing the wanderlust within. The notion of humans being predominantly active during the day and taking rest during the night is reversed as the singer longs for a more primordial freedom acknowledged in the bridge of Tarzan Boy with the lyrics, Night tonight, give me the other, give me the other, chance tonight. Give me the other, give me the other, night to night. Give me the other, give me the other world. The singer is also attempting to relay and reassure another person that the carefree jungle life is also for them in the verses, Jungle life, you're far away from nothing. It's all right, you won't miss home. Take a chance, leave everything behind you. Come join me, you won't be sorry. It's easy to survive. Ultimately, the charade of Baltimore came to an end a short time later when Maurizio Bassi scrambled to put together a follow-up single that did not possess the charm, music production, or hooks that Tarzan Boy had. I say let's grab the nearest vine, raise our hand to our mouth, and call out our appreciation for this outstanding dance-pop creation one more time. Oh, 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 As Tarzan Boy by Baltimore fades out, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 2 was released in August of 1985 and peaked at number 11 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Scritti Pulitti, and the song is Perfect Way. At the midpoint of the 1980s, a new subgenre of music was born out of new wave and pop music that incorporated a more jazz-oriented and soulful laid-back approach to involving instruments and vocals used in the music production. 
This genre would become known as sophistopop. This term described the sophisticated pop sound that incorporated classic R&B, soul music, and jazz elements into a more polished production process while still retaining many familiar sounds from its pop and new wave roots. Some of the artists that became associated with the sophistopop sound included Johnny Hates Jazz, Sade, Breathe, Basha, and Danny Wilson. One artist in particular that seemed a natural for this, this signature sound and crafting it into success was the trio Scritti Politti. Though they'd been around prior to the early 80s and had a very different sound with a punk, a rock, uh, almost raw sound, the trio didn't see any real recognition until 1985 when they released their album Cupid and Psych 1985. The song Perfect Way was released off of that album, and it immediately began to resonate with audiences. The beautifully crafted song is completely pop and completely unapologetic about its airy and light mood, with strings, percussion, and keyboards blending together to support lead singer Green Gartside's enthusiastic vocals as he professes his attraction and availability to the girl in the song in the lyrics, Maybe tomorrow, the next letter, or when the weather gets better, I gotta wait here for your moon to turn blue. I made an offer, exception, I made a sense out of you. You took a good look at your book, and I knew. The song is most recognized for its jangly chorus, which bounces and bops along with Gartside singing, I got a perfect way to make a new proposition. I got a perfect way to make a justification. I got a perfect way to make a certain maybe. I got a perfect way to make the girls go crazy. The trio of Scritti Politti definitely had the looks and the hooks to bolster them further within the realm of sophistopop and also into other genres uh, such as smooth R&B, blue-eyed soul, and contemporary pop. But as the genre became saturated with so many acts, they just became another one-hit wonder with a sound and a style that was way too similar to so many others. As Perfect Way by Scritti Politti ends, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 3 was released in September of 1985 and peaked at number 24 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Tamara and The Scene, and the song is Everybody Dance. The first time that I heard the song Everybody Dance by Tamara and The Scene was on the radio station KMEL, which was a local station for the San Francisco Bay Area. Until about the mid-80s, the station played predominantly rock formats, but as tastes and trends began to change significantly, they then started to incorporate some pop rock and dance songs and artists into their different lineup. I remember they did these segments called Trash or Treasure, where they'd play a song by a new artist or a new song from an established artist, and callers would call in and vote after it played if they thought it was a treasure if they liked it, or if it was trash if they didn't. One day, I heard them play Everybody Dance by Tamara and the Scene, and the DJ introduced the song, but he then didn't talk over it, like he gave it a beat or a moment before he actually pushed play on the song. 
Um, now I always had a blank cassette ready in my dual cassette player of my stereo system. And I remember pushing play and record down to capture the song because it started with this um, almost tribal drumming beat and then these animal noises from various birds and wildlife uh, caught my ear. It sounded like something that you might hear in like a jungle setting um, or if you're traveling out on a safari, just my young imagination just went straight there because I really didn't have a focal point for these sounds, but they just captured themselves into my ears. And I thought that they were unusual, but an interesting way to start the song. Moments later, the unmistakable and undeniable Minneapolis funk, soul, and dance sound that was extremely popular at the time and that I mainly associated with with Prince um, kicked in as the song took shape. Once Tamara started with a slight commanding whisper of a vocal singing the opening verses of Everybody's dancing with a new determination, but that you didn't know. Dancing is the move played with further isolation. Let your body go. We'll let you know we've got only good intentions. It's all right. Just do it with convictions. I was more than hooked. I must have missed the DJ introducing the artist because at first I thought that the singer was Apollonia from Apollonia 6 and that this was a second song or a different song other than Sex Shooter because something about the groove and the vocals, the way that they were delivered, reminded me of her. Um, it, it wasn't her, but at the time I remember thinking that it sounded very similar to her. I do remember calling in and voting after the song played that I thought it was a treasure because it was so catchy. And I remember playing that tape and just revisiting and listening over and over to that song and moving around my bedroom because I just love the way that it felt. For a while, I was making mixtapes of my favorite current songs, and I'd always put that song, Everybody Dance, first on side A because I thought it was a great opener. I thought it was interesting, and I really love her vocals on the song, and I just love that funk infusion that, that comes from the instruments and the music throughout. I also really like the chorus. The chorus is... Um, <laughs> it's very minimal. It's not, it's not too complicated. It, it literally just goes, oh, 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 everybody dance. And then it repeats that. So it's nothing fancy, but I just like the way that it sort of slows it down and that, um, chorus kicks in and it just kind of balances between the verses, which, which really pack the punch. Eventually, I got the 45-inch single from my father, and it came in a sleeveless jacket without a picture of the group, so I had no idea what Tamara and this scene actually looked like. Then about a few weeks later, when the song had entered the Top 40 chart and was receiving regular airplay on other stations besides KMEL, I saw them performing on American Bandstand one Saturday morning, and they sang the song. Turns out that Tamara was a stage name for lead singer Margaret Cox, who'd been set up with a band of session players that they called The Scene to create their first album. Another standout from the group is the ballad called Affection, which didn't chart or have the enthusiastic bass or percussion or rhythm section or bird and wildlife sounds that everybody danced did but it's still an insight into what Tamara was capable of and how she could hold her own amongst the women known for the Minneapolis sound like Vanity Six and Sheila E. Mm -hmm. 
as Everybody Dance by Tamara and the Scene ends, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track four was released in September of 1985 and peaked at number 16 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Duble, and the song is The Captain of Her Heart. The Captain of Her Heart by Swiss duo Duble is a lush, atmospheric ballad rich with romantic strings and guitars, and it's all led with an incredible piano. It has this haunting melody that captures the heartfelt emotion of lead singer Felix Haig as he mournfully sings in a lower register about a love affair that ended too soon. The woman in the song became restless and decided waiting around for him to commit to her was no longer worth her time, and she left. He laments this in the lyrics, As the day came up, she made a stop. She stopped waiting another day for the captain of her heart. What really stands out about the song is the impeccable orchestration involved in the piano chord progression, as he sings very few lyrics throughout the song. The song is almost as much the instrumentation and the music production as it is the lyrics. It's almost as though the music has taken hold and becomes its own lyric in guiding the listener through the regret and heartache and sorrow in this man's voice at losing the woman that he loved. There's something innocent about two people who find love but cannot communicate well enough to want to continue developing their relationship and as such, one of them usually becomes tired of waiting or wanting the other and just exits the relationship and that can leave the other with a longing that never quite heals. Um, that type of emotion is evident in this song. Um, again, as the lead singer Felix Haig conveys it in the minimalist lyrics, um, there's no denying that he's hurting and that he's haunted by what was and what he had hoped to continue having with this woman in the relationship, but it ended. Duble saw success with this light FM adult contemporary song at the midpoint of the decade, right around the middle of 1985. And that was just as tastes were changing. And oddly enough, on the charts and on the radio where the song was played, there were also hair metal songs, um, sophisticated pop type songs, rap was starting to take hold. So it's interesting that there was room on the radio for a little bit of everything. And this really slowed it down. And for some reason, this song always reminded me of the song Cherish by Cool and the Gang. It just has sort of that lush and romantic um, musicianship about it that I absolutely love. I remember when MTV's sister station VH1 premiered seeing the video for The Captain of Her Heart in heavy rotation because it complemented the vibe and the more adult uh, soft rock crowd that VH1 was trying to cultivate. I don't recall hearing anything else from the duo um, after this song, but occasionally to this day, I'll still hear the song. It's played in the grocery store or at a retail shop overhead and I just smile thinking about being young and how sophisticated I thought I was because I was discovering a adult contemporary jazz infused rich with piano and vocals uh, song 
And I just remember that time. And I remember thinking to myself, this is going to open the door to learning about other bands and other groups and other vocalists. And sure enough, it did. So thank you, Duble. As the Captain of Her Heart by Duble ends, I'll pause the cassette player and prepare the last song. Our final track was released in December of 1985 and peaked at number seven on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Sly Fox, and the song is Let's Go All The Way. Let's Go All The Way by Sly Fox is the only song that the dance pop duo saw achieve any popularity and is often misconstrued to be about consummating a sexual relationship between two people due to the chorus of let's go all the way let's go all the way yeah 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 let's go all the way it's that part of the chorus that's heard or at least the part of go all the way that i guess makes people think of consummating sex just as as i described when in reality, the verses have absolutely nothing to do with consummation or with intimacy or with sexual experiences. In actuality, the song is deeper in its message about remaining focused on achieving your goals or your dreams or your visions, no matter what obstacles might emerge or get into your path. It's really all about that spiritual focus and moving forward, understanding that there has to be work done now and you have to lay a foundation for yourself now so that you can reap the benefits down the road. Uh, The verses working in a factory eight days a week, try to make a dollar, damn, what a beat. Cartoon capers happen in reality, rich man, poor man, living in fantasy. It's as though it's told uh, from an observer who's then singing these lyrics as he watches what's obvious about how to get ahead, but how to get ahead the right way versus trying to cut corners or take shortcuts or trying to get what somebody else might have for yourself to seek fulfillment when the only person that can really get there is yourself and it should be done the right way. Those lyrics also chronicle the sort of beat down spirit that so many people can experience when they feel that they're not getting ahead or just managing to get by or living their life to the fullest. Things can become monotonous and so routine and we sometimes start to lose sight of ourselves and the real value that we present. The song talks about just really taking a look at yourself and knowing that it comes from within, it all begins within and then moving forward from there. And if you're going to give yourself to something, you have to go all the way. You cannot do it halfway. You cannot be mediocre. You have to really make it happen. And at the end of the day, if you've gone all the way at something, you should be able to achieve what you originally set out to do. The music production on this song is absolutely fantastic. And some of it is really uncanny Uh, The duo used factory sounds with compressors and presses to create the chunky block sounds that are heard throughout the song, along with its jubilant percussion and keyboards and guitars throughout. It just creates this infectious dance song right from the beginning. I mean, this is one of those songs that I remember it was played 
uh, at junior high school dances and everybody got up and just moved and danced and sort of formed circles and people would get inside the middle and try and show off their moves. And it was one of those songs that you really felt your head bopping and your feet tapping to, and you could try and do uh, some impressive dance moves to try and impress your friends as well as yourself, because this just, this had that kind of energy about it. Um, the incredible thing about this song by Sly Fox is that it does leave a lasting impression. Um, sadly, they were pegged as a one hit wonder, but if you're going to have one hit, I think that this is a great enough hit for you to be recognized for. And we did it. We've completed our 12th podcast playlist mixtape. I'll go ahead and press the stop button on the stereo and eject our tape. To recap, we opened Side B with Tarzan Boy by Baltimora, followed by Perfect Way by Scritti Pulitti. Next was Everybody Dance by Tamara and the Scene, and then The Captain of Her Heart by Duble. And we ended Side B with Let's Go All the Way by Sly Fox. I've labeled our tape One Hit Wonders 84 to 85 on both sides and put it into our cassette tape holder for completion. I hope you enjoyed learning about the artists and musical acts whose light burned bright, if only for a brief while before they became known as one hit wonders on the mainstream music chart. Everybody's cool in the mood, no insurrection, but that you didn't know. Body rock conviction with new dancers, great sensation. You got to lose control. As always, I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you and that you'll continue to listen and support Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist as we celebrate the music and the memories of the greatest decade to live in and live through the 1980s.